Welcome to BuildCast, a podcast brought to you by BCG Digital Ventures. Each episode, we sit down with CEOs, entrepreneurs, designers, and engineers with a diverse set of backgrounds. The one thing they have in common, a desire to build. We ask what gets them out of bed in the morning, about the challenges they've faced, and what they're excited to build next. Today's BuildCast guest is Alison Rushworth. Alison is currently partner and VP of design at BCG DV, where she works from the London Centre. She's an experienced digital consultant with 17 years of experience in product and service design and digital strategy. And she's also worked with clients across automotive, financial services, publishing, consumer electronics and healthcare. Alison, welcome. Lovely to Lovely to have you on. Um, so a bit of a, a kind of ritual that we have at the start of every BuildCast episode. Uh, we ask our guests, what was the first thing that they built? So um, what was it? It's a, I mean, that's a pretty big question. Um, I've always been building, you know, and I think you're probably hearing that from, from a lot of us in DV that that desire to create something has been with us since we were tiny. You know, I, I was always as a kid an artist, so I'm a designer. So naturally, I'm an artist. Um I, I guess the first things I built, oh God, this is going to sound horrific. I created an entire stable construct for my Cindy dolls when I was a little one um, and then went on to be constantly creating. So now I'm a dressmaker as well as a designer. So I'm always making outside of the work. Um, the first company that I built, um, I created my own photography business about 10 years ago um, and went from just an individual to a company of about three of us running photography across um, a lot of Europe for sort of landscape fine art and then shifting into um, street photography and such like. So I I guess maybe that that kind of explains why you're a designer. It kind of makes sense that that kind of uh, transition. Um, So so when did you think, okay, like I'm kind of like an artistic creative person, um, but really I want to kind of channel my talents into design specifically? Um, it, it was probably a little bit later in my career. So I, I studied fine art, um, recognized probably quite early on that this is a difficult career to get into. And as an artist, you've got to have a, a different sort of tenacity, I think, and a desire to really push that constantly. I had not realized or hadn't considered studying design for quite a long time because as an artist, you see art as creativity run. Design is a very different um, construct. When I was in my early 20s, so after my first degree, I was working at Freshwater Brookhouse Derringer, um, working on the design or sort of the information design of global knowledge management solutions. And I think it was during that that I realized actually I could channel my creative talents and my sort of fine art talents into the creation of products and services. And actually, you could shift to I didn't have to be a graphic designer. I could be, you know, using that sort of creative capability to invent something new. Yeah, that's really interesting that, that you, you kind of take the creative side. And, and so do you think that, like, I would say that creativity um, often is associated with, you know, like visual things or like aesthetic things, essentially, whether that's music or, or whatever it is. But I, I guess, yeah, like that's really interesting to see that as part of like process design or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, everyone's creative. Uh, and, and obviously at DV, we work with a huge variety of people and a huge variety of companies. Uh, and, and invariably, there'll be some point in the time when we work with them 
where somebody's nervous because I'm asking them to do something creative. I'm asking them to invent and they'll say to me, but I'm not a creative. I can't possibly do this. This is not what I'm here for. Uh, And my response is that you've got to shift away from this belief that being a creative is this unique capability that designers and artists and musicians have. Being a creative is about that ability to invent you know, to think differently, um, to come up with something new, to to be able to change the rules, to break the rules, to look at the world around you and be dissatisfied and want to evolve it. And we all have that and we can all channel that in a certain way. We've just been taught through, you know, the Western education system that, you know, it's about structure and process and step by step and creativity isn't really encouraged in the way that we are taught or in the way that we work. So it's kind of drummed out of people and it leads a little bit of uh, encouragement to get it back in. Sure. And I guess the other side of that is is frequently, you know, if you, it's the idea of art or, or music as something which doesn't really have a function. Like yeah. a, it's not useful work. Um, but I, I mean, would you agree with that? I, I I wouldn't personally. I would not agree with that at all. No, I mean, uh, imagine a world without art. Um, imagine a world without music. Music and and you know these industries are enormous. So you can look at it from a, a value perspective of what does it bring to society and how does this make us better people and make this a better environment to be in. And and in that sense, it's immensely useful. And then the flip side of it, these are huge industries. So, you know, there's a vast amount of money that shifts through the music industry and the fine art industry. So they, in that sense, they are valuable industries, you know, for people to be playing in. Sure. But but that, but I, w- I would say maybe from, from your, um, you know, your career, your perspective, um, it's been kind of taking that creativity and applying that to these these kind of like process um, yeah. or, or yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, traditional design thinking kind of areas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you'll often find that you, you can you can look at a process and you'll you know, you can follow the rules and you can break it down and go, there are these five steps and this happens and this happens and then this happens. And, and the problem that you find is unless you apply a creative mindset Typically, everyone, you know, you get stuck in your thought cages. You get stuck in that place where you believe that what has been done before must be the way that it can be done in the future. Um, You get stuck in a place where you look at a process and you know that process to be true and you can't comprehend that we could do things differently. So creativity is fundamental and that's why the design process is so inherent in DV because you've got to be able to look at something and believe it to maybe not be true. Sure. And I, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, you mentioned DV. I think that the way that DV is structured kind of bears that out because obviously we have a lot of people who have business backgrounds and are used to, um, you know, you know, dealing with business fundamentals, should we say. We have a lot of engineers who, who help us like deploy a lot of these things. Um, but we have a lot of designers in these like leadership positions and designers actually have a pretty active role in, in not just developing the, the product, but maybe um, looking at the kind of like business opportunities. Um, it, I, I mean, you, you previously worked as, yeah, as you mentioned, at the law firm and at the design firm. What is it that, that makes maybe DV different to those places? Yeah, I mean... I spent eight years at AKQA and I loved it and I thought it was an extraordinary environment and the inherent creativity in a design company like that is exponential. You know, you're meeting people whose ability to think differently is just mind-boggling. Where DV to me is unique and what makes this place a hugely exciting place for me to be um, is you've got that balance of design, invention, 
and the business bill component of it. You know, when, when I'm working historically on, you know, the creation of a product or a service or a marketing campaign, I'm coming at it purely from a creative or a customer perspective. And what I really want is a business brain sitting next to me who can look at it and who can go, I know what business model we can apply to make this work. I can figure out how this crazy idea you've come up with could potentially make money in the next five years, or who can very quickly tell me that I'm talking nonsense and there's no way in the world this crazy idea is going to make money. And and to me, for any designer out there to have that business brain sitting next to them and to be able to absorb that way of thinking just makes you a much better designer uh, you know you can you're looking at the world through multiple lenses you're not purely looking at it from that consumer or process or creative perspective you're really thinking about what is the impact and value the solution i'm creating is going to bring sure um and now like uh you know you you, you hold a leadership position um, so you know you're you're not just this kind of like uh, you know individual designer who's who's looking at things and, and you know coming up with like a single solution. You're you're leading groups of people and, and helping them, I guess, do the same thing, or maybe people are playing different roles. But do you think that like your background as a designer um, helps you in that specific role? Like what what does it you know bring you specifically that maybe it wouldn't for other Gosh, people from other disciplines? That's a big question. Um, I guess I'm different in some ways. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations. So I sit on, you know, various leadership teams within DV. Um, and in some ways, I guess in some ways my mind works a little bit differently because not only am I a designer, I'm a massive introvert. Um, I'm a quieter person. I like to observe and listen and see what's going on and understand motivations behind the decisions people are making. Uh, so I guess I bring... In some ways, a desire to break the rules a little bit. You know, I, I look after a lot of the methodology we create within DV. Uh, and a lot of that is because I will break the methodology and try something new. I'm willing to just give it a go and see what happens because you've got to have that inherent discomfort with the way something's currently working. Uh, but also, I bring a, a really strong human focus. You know, when I'm thinking about the creation of anything, a leadership position within DV is still a design role. I'm creating an environment for the people around me to work in. And, you know, some of that is about understanding the motivations of leaders in different centers or the motivations of individual teams and how those motivations might clash in the way that they work with each other. So I think you're, I'm possibly bringing a perspective to those teams that is balancing some of the commercial drivers you know you've got to have that two-pronged approach of how are we successful and how are we uh, continuing to make money and then the other side is like how are we ensuring that we have the right setup and the people in place and the engagement and happiness of those people in order to deliver what we need to deliver sure so yeah you mentioned being being an introvert um Mm. being slightly introverted i guess that yeah the popular idea of a, a leader or a strong leader is someone who not necessarily shouts a lot but is definitely extroverted is definitely kind of being quite loud yeah what would you say like maybe being an introvert and also being a leadership position what what does that grant you specifically yeah it's interesting right I mean and I've been told a number of times in my career I need to be more alpha male which is going to be challenging on many levels um you know you need to speak up more you need to talk more uh, and I think actually I learned quite late on in my career and I'm very, you know, always very keen now to support those who are more introverted in understanding the value they bring that you you spend more time observing and listening, you know, in an extroverted world. And it's, you know, both have their place and their balance. Your extroverts need to, they do their working out in public. 
You know, whatever thought process is going through their brain, they will speak that. So they're doing that collaborative analysis of everything that's happening, um, which means they talk a lot and perhaps they talk over each other quite a lot because they're all trying to work out. Uh, and as an introvert, I'm, I observe more. You know, I'm, I'm watching more and I'm listening and I'm probably spending a little bit more time figuring out what's happening with each of these people and then making a decision and then saying, this is what I think I see is happening here. Um, so I think the value, that, the, the place that that brings me and the value that allows me to bring is I give people the opportunity to see what they're really thinking um, because I'm listening to everybody's point of view. Uh, and, you know, it's always going to be hard because you're always going to be in those meetings where or in those environments where there is an expectation to be the loud and vocal person. And that's what we believe leadership should look like. Uh, but it doesn't actually have to be the case. Sure. And I guess also it's probably helpful in terms of like coming up with ideas for products and, and also like the, you know, the patterns of how users are going to interact with those products, because there are a lot of extroverts out there, but there are also a lot of introverts, but the extroverts will be heard more. I guess yeah. so, so I guess yeah. to keep those people in mind is also well, really important yeah absolutely and we talk a lot about design and design inclusivity and you need to design for as many people as you can uh, and typically when when we're designing you're designing for the the standard known human and the standard known human is a particular height shape color gender personality type and that's what you've kind of been taught that you're designing for um and and what we're looking to is is designed for all of the different behaviors so introversion and you know personality traits are are a new are a particularly unique one um, and you can actually say that there are going to be times in your life that society will make everybody an introvert if you are or have introverted behaviors if you're for example in a meeting or in an environment where you don't speak the language and everyone else does you're suddenly in a place where you can't interact and you can't engage and you've been put into that space where you're now having to act a little bit more in an introverted way. So we, so I guess two things. You know, when you're designing, you you can't look at just a generic human type, a known human type, because you're missing most of the population. And then secondarily, you've got to consider how inclusive are you making your product? Uh, and if that inclusivity or if that exclusivity is mean you're missing or marginalizing a portion of the population, well, that's actually going to have an impact on the success of your product. Sure. Yeah, it reminds me of the story. I think it was, was Kodak when they brought out some film um, and, and actually it, it, it didn't um, pick up black people for 30 years um yeah and yep. yeah which is yep. it's, it's terrible but uh, obviously yeah, any kind of um you know inclusive design thinking would have mitigated that terrible totally. problem. and and, you, and sometimes it's just careless uh, uh you know we we've we talked about this in in dv quite a bit amongst the design community that you design in you and everybody does it you design to the way that you look and feel uh, and you don't imagine that there's something different it's not intentional at all you just don't think um and you're still seeing it happening so the kodak example is actually being repeated constantly particularly when you're looking at voice interface because we're designing these things rapidly we're building rapidly um, and you'll typically find that the majority of engineers in any organization are male um, so they're building out these solutions and these solutions understand a particular male voice of a particular tone um, so you'll find that in the early days of voice interface they couldn't understand a female voice uh, and now they can't understand certain dialects um, and certainly they can't understand, you know, very specific dialects. So you're, we're still excluding people through design by 
just not thinking. It's just simple carelessness. Um, so just having that extra point of view and going, hang on, in our design process, have we considered all of the data, all of the people? Have we tested this with a diverse enough set of individuals? Then you're probably in a good place. Sure. So you mentioned voice technology there, um, mm. which uh, gives me the opportunity to do a very, very blunt pivot. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually, I, I guess voice tech is maybe not deep technology mm. at this point, but deep technology is something that we're thinking a lot about at DV yep. at the moment. Yeah. Um, I guess it would be interesting to approach it maybe from a design point of view, because a lot of the, the things that the technology in theory enables us to do are not yet realities which would, um, you know, approach deployment should mm, we should we say yep. um so so but but nonetheless companies and, and us at dv2 we want to be kind of at the forefront we want to be using these kind of bleeding edge technologies um to enable us to you know unlock value and, and do new things um so what are kind of like i guess the problems or possibilities offered mm. by trying to deploy these these technologies when they're not maybe perhaps quite ready yet yeah i guess there's a number of problems um the big one is humans humans are challenging, difficult, a bit annoying, don't like change most of the time. Um, and when you're looking at uh, any sort of deep tech, anything that's new and different, there's an inherent nervousness in society. Uh, and you see that a lot at the moment when people are talking about um, you know, automated cars, that people are nervous about it. They're like, oh, I don't trust it, and it can never drive as well as I can, and how can it possibly? And we saw exactly the same about 40 years ago when we went to the automatic gearbox where people just couldn't possibly comprehend that a vehicle could make these decisions for them. So so the first thing that we have to start thinking about is is a balance of both when is the technology ready and when is society going to be ready? And if society's not going to be ready in time, what do we need to do to make society ready? How do we get people comfortable with this change? And some of that is around creating utility that they just can't comprehend not having you know imagine a world now where we didn't all have a smartphone in our pocket you couldn't but 50 years ago it's not necessary right i wouldn't want that it's ridiculous um so i guess the first thing is looking at how do we make society ready and how do we persuade people that they need it so there's a big behavioral change element to it and then the second is looking at the implications of it so what is technology going to do that's going to change society around us? Um, you know, when we're looking at things like intelligent automation, what is that going to do to jobs? What's it going to do to places of work? How do we make sure that companies are ready for these fundamental shifts so that, again, the humans don't stop it from happening? Um, you know, a really great example is when you're looking at automation um, or you're looking at anything where you're using data to replace human decision-making, there's that sort of period where you still need humans to help drive that process and you're going to need them to engage. If they feel threatened by it, they will prevent it from happening. Um, so a big part of it is, for me, I think from a from a company perspective, it's understanding the behavior change and, and what can we do to make that easier and smoother. And secondly, I think there's a really interesting topic to be had or, or a space, more sort of theoretical space to think about around how is society going to shift as we move towards these technologies? What is it fundamentally going to do to us in terms of how we operate, how we work, how we travel, how we interact? And then therefore, what new opportunities are going to come out of that? Sure. And I guess what maybe another question that's kind of behind that as well is, uh, I guess it's, uh, you know, what, what kind of comes first, really, like the technology or like the use case? Oh, <laughs> um, Because I, I know that, like, I feel like 
the design uh, answer to this or the standard design answer to this would be to kind of go by use case. You know, we, what is this problem that exists out in the world that people want solved? And what is the best technology that's going to enable us to solve it? But I feel like there is some uh, kind of, should we say, experimentation that it needs to take place where, you know, maybe starting with the technology is, is going to be a useful exercise. I think there's a balance of two, right? If you start purely use case and go, how do I solve this problem? You're going to solve that problem with technologies that currently exist or processes and services that currently exist. And it and it's a, a harder leap for people to suddenly go, oh, problem A plus technology B equals amazing new future for all of us. If we if we look purely from a technology perspective and go, hey, look, we've got this amazing new technology. What can we do with it? We're going to end up with solutions that perhaps nobody wants. Uh, you know, you're going to end up with solutions where it's great and it's super exciting, but you're not going to get that long term engagement or that long term usage because it's not bringing value. So you've got to come at it from both sides. If you take purely use case and don't consider the possibility of new technologies, you're not going to get change and evolution. If you take purely technology, you're not going to get product market fit. So so what we would suggest is you've got to you know look at it a little bit differently um, and start exploring. So can you think about hypothetical scenarios of what a future technology could do? How can it work? Where do we believe it can influence the world around us? How do we believe it can make um, a more positive business environment? How can we believe it can help us to achieve efficiency, effectiveness, whatever? And then you start going, what do we think the hypothetical use cases are that this technology can deliver against? And when you've got this big, long list of use cases, well, then you can match them to problems that we know in the market. So you're almost adding that middle step in of going, let's preemptively Think about what the problems this tech could solve, and then you can match them to actual things that you're seeing out there. Sure. And what kind of role would you say forecasting plays in this kind of thing? Because that that is, I would say, a very, very sensible approach to it. But as we know, often these com- these technologies come in combinations. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when we're thinking about autonomous cars, for example, um, we have a lot of the technology that we need f- for that already. But will it really be able to be completely widespread without a full operational 5G yeah. network? Yeah. So I guess if you're a designer in that in that position, you're kind of making a taking a little bit of a gamble that that yeah. is going to exist. So yeah. how far is it possible to do that? I've been asked um, recently to predict a future for 2035. That's not possible. I cannot, I cannot do that. I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen in that time frame. Um, it's some way much easier to imagine that future and go, I can see a world where X, Y, and Z is likely to happen. Um, but it may not happen, right? Um, you need to do a certain amount of prediction. And I think you can create a, a series of futures that you believe to be true. And normally what we would say is we would look at, uh, you know, multiple potential futures and look at what needs to happen for them in order for them to occur. And and those multiple futures are typically a combination of technology, society, regulation, speed of change. There's a lot of different factors that come in place. I mean, technology is great. And when you look at autonomous cars, yeah, you need the car and you need the 5G. You also need shifts in town planning and the way the city's going to work you need that behavioral shift in what humans are comfortable with and you know a sort of big shift away from this sort of ego desire of owning a car and being a good driver there's a lot of extra stuff that has to happen so future visioning and that sort of you know trends based approach or that futuristic approach 
it's critical for us to be able to imagine a future that can exist, but you've always got to backtrack from it and go, in order for X to happen, what are the many, many things that need to happen along the way? And how believable do we think that's going to be? Awesome. Yeah, that's that's super, super interesting. It's always a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess maybe the, the the kind of like final question now is, is you know, you've been, I would say, pretty entrepreneurial throughout your career. Um, you, you know, you've been a, a pretty, you know, prominent, like a you know leader as a designer um what is the the advice that you would pass on to others who want to to you know build a company or or, or build something i guess two things that, that that have always maybe three that have always stayed true to me the, the most important and as a designer i'm kind of legally obliged to say this you are not the people you are designing for you are never the people you're designing for um or trying to sell to and I can't tell you the number of times where I sat in a meeting and someone said, oh, but my aunt wouldn't do that or I wouldn't use it like this. And, and that's irrelevant. You know, so the first thing is figure out who you're designing for and what problem they have and don't make massive assumptions. You know, I, I've we again hear a lot, you know, these sort of generic statements of millennials, boomers, the elderly, blah, 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 and what their behaviours are. And that's a nonsense. Look to the real people out there and how they're really interacting. And you'll find a lot of really interesting insights, behaviours and attitude. Then I think the second thing I would say is you're only ever as good as the people that you pull around you. You know, I'm a good design leader because of the team that I have. And if I didn't have that team, I would not be able to do my job. So no matter how senior you get in your career, don't ever get an ego and think that you're better than anybody else. Because if you took away your support crew and you took away your network, suddenly you don't have anything. Uh, and then the last thing, take risks and have a bit of fun. You know, break the rules occasionally. Don't don't follow what society says you've got to do and don't look at an existing thing that's been happening going, oh, well, we've got to always do it like this because the world says I've got to do something different. Enjoy yourself. Great advice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alison. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about BCG Digital Ventures, find us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Instagram. And stay tuned for more episodes of Buildcast.